Conversation Matters, episode nine, with me, your host, Jerry Lynch, and today's very special guest, Danny Lennon of Sigma Nutrition. Danny, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are things, my man? I am very well. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Jerry. You're very welcome. Fantastic to have you in. Um, tell me, how are things? How's life, particularly maybe current climate and, and work and everything? Is there much affected or are you, are you battling on as normal? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm in the same boat to a lot of people, I guess, that it's a nuisance not being able to get outside and be able to see friends and be able to meet up and do stuff and get to the gym. But apart from that, it's been relatively okay for me. And I think there's a lot of people in a lot worse off position. Uh, like I can stay working pretty much as normal. Uh, most of uh, everything I do is essentially just me on a laptop most days. So it's, it's not too much different. So apart from missing the odd conference and seminar, it's uh, business as usual, really. So I'm in a kind of fortunate position, I guess. Good man yourself. And on the topic then of some of, some of your travel and seminars and the work that you do kind of where travel is involved and globally as such, obviously they have been postponed or frozen for the time being. Have, have they, They've obviously mm-hmm. been kind of heavily impacted. Right, yeah. So there was a, a few events that I was, there was actually two events in Australia that was due to do over the next couple of months that have now been pushed back most likely to next year and then a few other um, events similar one in Liverpool and and then there's usually events that we put on ourselves that won't be going ahead obviously so yeah everything just pushed back but it's not too big a thing to complain about in the grand scheme of things I guess. Fair play to you. excellent. So Danny what I'd like to do first both for myself I guess and, and particularly for the listeners listening in today can you take us back to kind of forming Sigma Nutrition Radio and the podcast? Can you bring us right back to kind of creating Sigma or I suppose even maybe further back to your own education, which led to Sigma and then and then forward from there? Yeah, so I think the kind of most brief way I could uh, state it is I was originally doing my undergrad degree in biology and physics education and with the goal of becoming a secondary school teacher here in Ireland which I, I did and I taught for a year after graduating uh, in a school in Limerick but during that time my main interest was really sports that I was playing and it paired up with that interest in trying to get better at performing and and being an athlete generally with now this new skill that I was learning in college of how to read research papers I started looking into the area of sports performance which led me into the area of nutrition and just became more and more fascinated by that and so to fast forward on a few years I I was doing that in my spare time basically throughout college and afterwards um, and then took the decision after my first year of teaching that I was going to quit teaching and go back and I went to UCC to do a master's in nutritional sciences and off the back of that I had started doing some consulting just myself with people on nutrition I started writing some very basic articles stuff like that and then decided to start Sigma Nutrition as a company with the goal of putting out educational information uh, around nutrition combined with our coaching practice that we have, uh, which is entirely online at present. And so that was the start of, of it. That was back in late 2013, early 2014. And so when Sigma was launching uh, as a way to put out various pieces of content, I decided I'll start doing this on everywhere I can possibly do it. I'll put out YouTube videos, I'll write articles. And then at the time, I'd been very interested in listening to podcasts just for myself. Although at that time, podcasting wasn't 
big at all, certainly nowhere near what it is now. And so I said, well, I think this might be something I could I could do. It might be interesting. It might be another way for me able to put out information. And so started the podcast in early 2014. And then for reasons that are probably still unknown to me, things started going pretty well with that. And the podcast started to take off. And I decided to cut back on most of the other forms of content to one degree or another. And I put most of my focus on the podcast. And here we are six years later, I guess, and it's thankfully doing pretty well. Um, and that's how it came about, really. Yeah. Amazing. Fantastic. It's very, very interesting. And just on the timeline there, Danny, when you say maybe late 13 into early 14, when, when you were really kicking off, would you say that the industry was quite different between then and now in terms of maybe the, rea- the reaction online, the interaction online, away from the popularity of the content and of yourself, just mm. the overall topics covered? I assume it's more popular today than it was five six years ago seven years ago yeah i mean for sure i mean we're at the peak now i suppose of the fitness industry boom of where it's just so ingrained within the culture now and so many people getting involved with it and i so i think there's more people out there looking for health and fitness content there's more people out there producing it, obviously and the formats in which it's being done is obviously very different to 2014 um, particularly if you look at some of the ability for people to build a presence and scale, say entirely on Instagram, that wasn't something that was really doable or, it, I mean, there was different forms of it, but it wasn't in the same way that we're seeing now. And in terms of the content, whilst then and now there was both good scientific based content and others that is not so good, I think predominantly even thinking about the idea of evidence-based practice within nutrition and training wasn't as well known back then, at least at a a broad industry-wide level. You didn't really hear the term evidence-based being used that much. It was more kept to more academic conversations. And then it started to build and people seemed to start to have an affinity towards having a more evidence-based approach all the way to now where, unfortunately, I think in many circumstances, it's almost become a buzzword in that people are using that term without really actually being evidence-based or understanding what that concept should mean. So there's been kind of a swing of the pendulum in that direction. So I think there's probably more scrutiny placed on content now that people can go and check if this is actually legitimate or is actually based by evidence or there's there's people asking for supporting evidence whereas i think some of the main voices in, in the industry before maybe didn't have that same degree of scrutiny that was always on them um and again that's a gross generalization because there was very evidence-based practitioners and content producers back then as there is now and vice versa right now probably the majority of people putting out fitness information is probably actually, if you look worldwide, it's probably bad information because most people that start doing that aren't really that interested about how accurate it is, I would say. But there's some of the things I think, so there's definitely been more of a move towards an evidence-based information, but to the degree now where it can become a bit of a, a buzzword. Excellent, very well answered. Well, I was going to add to that and maybe a slight curveball today, 2020 into 21. Are you in favor of this mass amount of information that's been put out there now 
and genuine use of evidence-based, are you in favor of many more people sharing what they know or is it becoming too crammed for you? No, I think that's one of the fallacies a lot of people fall for, this idea that because it's so popular now, there's too much competition or the market is too saturated. I just don't think that's accurate. I think there's more than enough people out there looking for good quality information that people can provide. And I mean, just if just people think of the people in the fitness community that they may follow, no one follows just one person and no one else. People follow a whole number of people. Like the same idea, if someone is writing a book, you're not competing with every other book in existence because people read more than one book. Or the same messages that if me and you were putting out the same content, there's going to be people that might resonate more with the way I package up that messaging, let's say, and the way that you would do it, the type of language we use, the voice we use, the type of people we're talking to, the way we go about it, what mediums we choose to use it. And so I think the real goal should be that we want more and more people putting out good quality information to the point where overwhelmingly the average person can see what is accurate information because there's this consensus across all these people who see seem reasonable and sensible and there shouldn't be any one person that is some sort of like guru or leader in the area of this and so we don't need to think there's there's too many people doing it in fact there's probably not enough people putting out the type of information that we would like to or there's too many people putting out inaccurate information that is potentially damaging to people and so yeah there's more than enough people that needs to hear it and no one is going to reach every single person. So there's more than enough room for everyone. And I think that's generally a rule we could apply across the board for people getting into the fitness industry. Because it's a common concern I often hear of, oh, it's it's so saturated now. There's too many people that are coaches or there's too many people doing online training or there's too many people doing a podcast or whatever it is. And it's the wrong way to look at it. Sure, there's lots of people doing it. There's more people getting involved than ever before, but there's also never been a bigger opportunity of how many people out there are ready to listen to that information or how easily you can reach them. You can reach thousands of people for free now just through either social media or some sort of format. Or you can go the other way and have no social media presence and still have a really successful business in the fitness industry. It comes down to the quality of the information you can put out and how you can communicate in such a way that resonates with people. That's what it's really about. How are you putting out this messaging in a way that actually gets through to someone, is relatable to them, that is useful, and if it helps them, then that's how you're going to be able to to build and, and get past all the people who aren't able to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's very well answered. It's brilliant. I love what you said, actually. And I suppose just to add to that, it's a case, I feel, where if the correct message is posted and put out there enough times across enough accounts kind of what you're getting to is that it can only add credibility to the person at home who's unsure what to follow or who to who to believe you know what i mean so if you have five or ten accounts that that you're fairly impressed with and and, you know they have the some of them have the evidence based and they just know what they're at if they're all saying the same thing it can only lend it can only be a positive and lend credibility to that message like absolutely and the same goes for when you're putting out messaging if you've heard a similar message that someone made a really good point you can share that point and and credit that person and people actually look more favorably on 
that type of, of post, then the person that claims to have the answer to everything and they came up with the answer, this type of idea. Whereas the person who's able to pull useful information from various sources and share that with people who are following them is a much more useful and relatable person um, because it seems, well, it is more honest, but it also people think, oh, this person is able to go and find this good information from all these sources and kind of work their way through it for me and they just give me the practical bits of information I need instead of being this person that supposedly has every answer already. So uh, I think that's part of it too. Yeah, it's a brilliant answer because it's always something I look out for, be it following somebody online or if I was interviewing someone for a position or anything, but you know, the, the kind of scenario where the answer is, if I don't know it, I will go and find the answer for you, mm. as opposed to just come up with some sort of BS answer just for the sake of answering. There's a big difference there. like. Yeah, and, and I think people are pretty good at seeing through that as well. Yeah. Or at least more and more people are getting to that point. And I think uh, particularly here in Ireland, we're, I think we're generally good with our ability to <laughs> detect bullshit most of the time. Yeah, yeah, a bit of a sixth sense of some sort. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Danny, can I, as I say, I'd like to focus in a little bit then on the podcast. I know we've touched on it there and got a decent background into why you chose it and, and when it started kind of becoming increasingly popular and successful for you. But can I bring you right back again to, to once you made the decision or kind of you could, you could kind of see that it, it was kind of, you know, evolving for you. Was there what might be kind of general nerves or, or otherwise confidence around taking on the platform of the podcast kind of with the first two to three to five episodes yeah, I mean, I think that's always going to be the case in any endeavor. And I think the norm for most people is when we start trying to do something new or particularly when we're in a position where we want to be uh, seen to be giving out information is this degree of imposter syndrome, which I'm sure many people have heard of before. And there's lots of uh, good resources talking about this concept but we always will be worried that well, we hope things will go well. We hope that we don't make a mess of stuff. We think, who am I to be doing this? Why would anyone want to listen to my podcast? Yeah, I hope I ask the right questions, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's always going to be nerves on a new project like that, particularly when it's something that is a bit unknown. But I think I was kind of lucky that relatively quickly – I found at ease with it. I think just the, maybe the medium suited me well. And it wasn't to say that it, it was just no problem straight away. There was obviously certain discussions you get maybe more nervous for than others. But in terms of how the podcast would actually go, I was lucky to see that pretty early um, I got the sense that it it was going to be of good value to people. And maybe that could be just me being delusional, but at the time that's how I felt. So that kind of re relaxed me a bit too. So th there's always nerves of how it will be received. And I think some people are maybe more immune to that than others, but I definitely tend to think about that a lot when I'm putting out content, even as much as I can try and tell myself, look, uh, all I can do is put it out and what happens happens and I've tried my best. There's still a, a part of me that's always going to, really hope that people respond favorably to it. Um, and that may be a bit of, um, yeah, imposter syndrome. It could be a bit of ego. I, I don't really know, but it's, yeah, I think it, it's natural to worry about the perception of stuff that we, we produce. 
So, um, yeah, it was definitely there initially for sure. Excellent. And what I always found, I think we spoke about it in a previous conversation, even in the, I just have a couple of episodes done uh, of my own podcast, but there's, there's a nice sense of confidence in that. As I say, I remember in a previous conversation and we were comparing the platform of, of the podcast world to maybe Instagram and with the figures and the numbers that there, there's very little you can do in grand, you, you know, of course you can keep an eye on, on the listenerships and the plays, but there's so much emphasis on numbers and followers and likes and all the carry on on Instagram versus your podcast. You can just kind of put it out there and, you know, if you get some decent feedback and that, you know, I, I don't think people are too caught up in the podcast platform mm. on figures and likes and followers and whatever versus other platforms where there's a huge emphasis on this almost kind of fake popularity or, or mm. the numbers given as such, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I do think even if someone was to start thinking, how do I grow the, the number of listeners, let's say, or how do I get more people to listen? The simple solution most of the time is that it just needs to be good quality and then over time more people listen. So the focus becomes on making the conversations or the episodes of as high a quality as you can. And the more useful they are to people, the more they're going to get shared and more people are going to listen in. Whereas particularly with Instagram, that's not necessarily always the case that the posts that would get someone the most number of likes doesn't necessarily correlate with what are most useful um, or most informative or going to be most beneficial to the person viewing it. And I mean, there's easy ways people know this, that certain things will increase the probability of a high number of likes on a certain post that may be meaningless. Um, I think I said uh, to you before about you could have a certain photo that looks good and you have the right filter and the right pose after doing a workout and just pick a random motivational quote from the internet and post it as your caption and put nothing else. And that may get more than a post with a lot of time and thought gone into it about the, uh, about a certain piece of research with a really useful finding that people could start using. So, and that's not always true, but that would be an example where the usefulness and the quote unquote quality of the post doesn't correlate with the reaction it gets. And so when people are creating content, particularly if they're a practitioner and a coach and they're creating content for business reasons, they need to bear that in mind that the number of likes they get on a post doesn't necessarily reflect on how useful that post is not only to people following, but to them as well, that they could get a lower number of likes on a certain post but if it's more actionable and usable by the people that do like it, then it's much more likely those people will be longtime followers or eventual clients or will stay following them and supporting their business over the long term. Whereas they could artificially try and get more likes just by manipulating what the post looks like, but it may not actually bring them more credibility as a, a voice in industry. So if that's their goal with the post, it may be counterproductive to solely base the success of the post just on the number of likes. Yeah, it's a very interesting insight into the whole thing. And I suppose to add to it, the fitness space, particularly maybe on Instagram, is very much aesthetically driven. And again, I think we spoke about this uh, briefly before where it's sort of a case of, of buying with your eyes. You know, in terms of your, if you're looking for an online coach or a personal trainer, a lot of it can be short as testimonials and transformation pictures and all the rest of it that, that people do go for and word of mouth is, is very powerful and the rest of it. But to a certain degree, it is a, it is an aesthetically 
driven market and, and kind of space within Instagram. And I suppose what I love so far, and I'm very much at entry level to this podcast platform, is it's very much a new dynamic in that it sounds a bit silly, but where Instagram we're buying with our eyes and that, and it's all aesthetics, you're almost buying with your ears as such. We're listening, we're not looking at anything. Personally, anyway, it's a very much a, a new dynamic, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I think, of course, I may have a bias towards uh, the podcast, but I do think when you go and listen to someone have a conversation for an hour, you're much more likely to get a feel of, okay, what is this person's philosophies around training and fitness and lifestyle? What are they, are they someone that might resonate with me as a coach? Would I enjoy going and doing sessions with them? Would they be able to understand my needs? Do they have the same perspectives I do on what it means to be healthy and so on? You can get maybe a better assessment of that than purely if you're looking at it through posts. Now, there's some people that do it very well through Instagram. You can do that through people who post lots of, say, stories in kind of a vlog format or put up videos where they're kind of trying to give more of a, a background of what they're doing and why and informative content like that. So it's, it can definitely be done. But to your point of just the immediate visual presence on Instagram of people that fall into the trap of, oh, I see a certain photo of these people and therefore that would be the, the coach for me, may not give them as much of an assessment as they could get from listening to conversations that that person is having. They'd be able to, in my opinion, probably get a guide of, is this person going to be a good fit for me in terms of someone to get information from or go to as a coach? So I do think there's value in that. I, I just think it's just more, much more likely you get a better sense of someone if you're having listening to this long form conversation uh, versus just snapshots of things now and again that are essentially um, I mean, if they're a lot of it can be artificial, which is just the nature of the medium. And that's not meant in a derogatory term for people who do it, because I would say the same about my Instagram feed. If someone looked at the, my posts on Instagram, whether they're about business or my life, they're, again, just snapshots in time. They're not the reality of what my life is. Um, and people may get a very different perception and think, oh, look, at all these great things that are always happening just purely because that's all that's on there as opposed to the reality of the situation. So yeah, I would tend to agree for that reason. So it can definitely be done in different formats, but it's just how it's done. And I think there's value in being able to open out and um, essentially long form content that you can't get in a, in, in one post or in 15 seconds or something like that. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's very accurate and, and on the ball because like a conversation versus a text or an email or in this case a post you you instantly get far more personality straight away you have to you know what i mean there's there's mm. i suppose pardon the play on words but there's no there's no filters there can't be as such you know it's a natural mm. conversation or a mm. phone versus email you, you know you get a better kind of maybe what you're touching on a better gist of the person and what they're about and how they're feeling etc etc right. and that leads to, to maybe a, a better rapport than you know yeah, and I think it, it probably goes just beyond the, the medium of podcasting because it's, of course, possible for someone to podcast and not really be authentic. Like they could script certain things to make them come across a certain way and to try and essentially manipulate listeners into 
believing they're a certain type of uh, person, let's say. And on the flip side, there could be someone that uses solely Instagram and is completely authentic and can build a, a following the exact same way as the authentic podcaster that I mentioned. And in fact, the people that I respect most who have built massive audiences on Instagram and are really actually helping people in the health and fitness space do exactly that. So one that I commonly give as an example to people is if you look at Roz Parcel, I think she does an amazing thing for people who are interested in health and fitness. And how she does that is she's genuine and authentic. She shows people what is actually going on with her, what she really thinks about things, and then just promotes really useful messages that more people in the fitness industry should hear about all the negative stuff that we buy into of that lead to body image disorders and eating disorders that is rampant among the fitness industry and pointing out how nonsensical all that stuff is and that it's not necessary and that we should be enjoying food and we should be being active and involved in fitness because we enjoy doing it and because it brings all these benefits, not because we're trying to constantly starve ourselves to look a certain way because we think that's what the internet or other people want us to look like. And she's one of the best to constantly reinforce that message, not through preaching it, but by kind of living it and showing people that in an authentic way. So she's an example that I give to people because yeah, I think that's the way that you use it and help people, not by just putting up filtered posts and motivational quotes that are meaningless and not helpful to anyone. And in fact, often can lead to people having negative emotions when they see such posts. But paradoxically, they can't stop on following some of the people that do it. So yeah, that's just my kind of thoughts on it. Fantastic. Very well said. And Danny, before we move on, kind of from the podcast platform and delve into your other uh, lines of work and, and the other bits and pieces you've got going on. Just out of curiosity, have you a process of choosing and approaching guests to come on your own podcast or have any kind of hints and tips around that? So generally at, at the moment, it's based mainly around what I'm reading. So if I'm reading certain area of research and I'll be pulling up research papers and there's a topic that I find particularly interesting, I'll look at the like the lead authors on those papers and go have a look through their previous publications and their biography. And usually I'll just like reach out and ask, would they be willing to have a conversation on this particular topic that I read this paper and have these kind of questions that I might be interested in getting into. And so that's usually how it occurs. Other times it can be, I may identify a particular subtopic that I haven't looked at for a while or that isn't super familiar to me that I want to look into a bit more. And then when I start doing it, the same process happens. I get to realize some of the names that are the kind of authority figures in that area, and I'll reach out to them. And usually that's the way it, it happens. Uh, in terms of a process for a, I just keep a sheet within Google Docs that's basically just a list. And as I come across some of these people in different areas, I'll pop their name down, find an email address for them, add that there, and then a link to the kind of some of their publications. And then I'll just keep that list. And then at certain time points every few weeks, when I'm planning my next batch of podcasts, I'll start reaching out to people and start planning those. And so I just keep that an on running document so that there's always people there to go and do. So that's kind of been the process up to this point anyway. 
Excellent. Makes sense. Yeah. And I suppose when you're approaching someone maybe studying it into a master's, into a PhD and, and beyond, it makes a lot of sense that this person will want to talk about it all day, every day. You know, they've probably chosen the topic and the subject because they're hugely passionate about it or interested in it. So, so they right. instantly make a great guest on that topic and it's quite likely they'll accept your invite for the same reason, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think it's not like every person you ever reach out to is gonna be able to do it. People have different schedules and not everyone is is as available. And there's some people that I've been working on for quite a long period of time and it's a very slow process to eventually get them on. But in the vast majority of cases, I think people are are pretty good to have conversations if it's framed the right way in a kind of in a respectful manner. So that's all I try and do, just say, hey, I've been reading your work i think it's really interesting I have this podcast i'd love to have a conversation um if you don't have time or the interest there's no obligation to reply to this email and then that's it and if they want to do it they do it and if not no problem but that's typically the way it's worked and then also over time it becomes easier like it's obviously much easier for me now to get certain guests than it was before because they've either heard of the podcast or they know a colleague or someone else that's been on it or a high profile name or I can give them a, a rundown of like download numbers and they can see how this will probably be worth my time etc so it's easier once you're doing it for a while for sure but I think even at the beginning you could you could be surprised at how many good quality conversations you can have with really good people just through approaching it in a kind of respectful manner and not being expectant of everyone having to reply, let's say. Great advice. Excellent. Very well said. So, Danny, if we park the podcast platform for a moment and if we kind of delve into the other projects and other bits and pieces that keep you busy from day to day. Um, so aside from the podcast, then you're, you're heavily involved and kept busy with you have your seminars. I know you've done a lot of work with coaching MMA fighters and boxers. And of course, you have a, a great book published as well. Um, so what I'd like to do is kind of break those down and, and just delve into those a little bit um, mm. and get some information and background on those. So can you talk to us a little bit first about the seminars and how they came about, what's involved, the travel? and Yeah, so it's one of the areas where I probably enjoy most is doing live lectures or seminars. And yeah, it's, I think there's, I suppose there's two sides of it. One is the events that I organize as Sigma Nutrition, our own independent events, which have been running since 2015. And then there are others where I get invited to a conference or to a facility to give a talk. Um, and those are amazing too. I, I've been very lucky to be able to visit a lot of cities around the world to be able to do those, uh, which I'm very fortunate to do. And then with our own Sigma Nutrition events, the first big seminar that we ran was in 2015. It was a full weekend seminar uh, in Dublin. And off the back of that, we had a really good response to a, had a great group of people turned up for a full weekend. And that kind of gave me the um, essentially incentive to know that people were looking for this type of information and, and trusted Sigma Nutrition enough to come and learn from me. Uh, and so that's been something that's been going on since. Um, so I've done those seminars. I've done one day seminars last year as well. And also have done a live podcast event uh, in 2018 as well. And then the speaking at conferences and, and in different 
gyms I get to do quite often. I've been able to speak in different corporate organizations. Uh, so they're all very different depending on who the audience is and what the topic is going to be. But I really like them regardless. And it's, like I said, it's probably one of my most favorite things to do is to be able to speak at events. Um, and it's also a great opportunity just to meet people in person. So most of my fond memories tend to be meeting people that have followed the podcast that, that have came to the event uh, or meeting other speakers who through doing these events, I've got to know quite well. And several of them now I would call good friends just from being able to meet and hang out and spend time with them. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of different things, but it, it, I enjoy it. Excellent. Yeah. It must be very kind of, I'm not sure if emotional is the right word, but certainly kind of moving and, and special moments, as you say, meeting people that, that might have followed you from the start and, and fans as such, maybe of your work, you know, in person and around the world. Yeah. I mean, it it's still weird to me as well, you know, because I think we always like, especially when most of my stuff is just me putting stuff out here on, on the internet, I kind of become maybe forget that it's actually helping people in the real world uh, or you always worry, is this actually doing much good? And then when you're able to talk to people who have been following it and are for some reason, I won't understand excited to talk to me, <laughs> then uh, it's crazy. It, it's obviously really, really nice, but yeah, it's not something I'm don't think I'll ever be used to. Uh, but yeah, it, it's really cool. Yeah, that's excellent. Happy days. Great stuff. And Danny, then in terms of the seminars then and the lectures and, and whatever events might be going on, are you kind of locked into a topic per seminar, depending who booked you or whatever? Or do you do it on a, do you cover a wide range of, of topics across across different um, seminars and lectures and, and guest speaking events? Yeah. So the way I've tried to work it is to try and keep whatever I'm talking about as as novel and fresh as I can. So I'll never go and say to someone, I will only talk about this topic. So usually I leave that up to the event coordinators. Either they will say, hey, can you talk about this particular topic? Or they might ask me to suggest, let's say, three or four different options, and then they'll pick one. So whatever they want me to present on, I'm cool with, with doing that, as long as it's something that I, I feel that I have some degree of something interesting to say about and I have some degree of knowledge on. So, and usually that's it. So it can vary widely from uh, different, from lecture to lecture or, or what the context of it is. So for example, last year at the event I was speaking at in Melbourne, I talked about the area of chrononutrition, which is kind of health focused, look at how meal timing impacts our circadian rhythms. And then a few months earlier, I was at one and um, on the Sunshine Coast in Australia, where it was about carbohydrate periodization in sport. So a completely different topic. So it's, for me, it's, uh, it keeps it interesting that I don't have to just do the same thing over and over. Uh, and I just try and make sure that it's, it's tailored specific for that audience that's going to be there. So they actually get something useful from it. And because my interests jump around quite a lot, it, it's, it suits me to be able to dive into different topics and then try and put something together on those from time to time very good and on that it's a sl slightly off topic but on the topic of content and and different things that you cover do you follow trends in the industry or do you follow what you're reading or you know as you said it's a bit sporadic and it, and it could mm. be anything 
which is amazing. It could be anything from the, the examples you just mentioned and, and, and anything in between. Is there, again, is there a process to, to what you'll write about tomorrow or what the next podcast is about? Are you following, you know, whatever's hot and popular or, you know, is there a process to, to what content goes out and when? To be honest, no, it, it's, uh, there probably should be if someone was to sit me down and say, <laughs> here's a smart way to plan out your business. But really it's just a function of what some people might think is a, a problem of my interest just jumping around and I don't know when they're going to change or what the next thing that I'm going to get interested in or why or what will I come across that will spark that interest. But a lot of it is just random and sporadic and a, a topic will come across my path and I'll get interested in it and then start going down a rabbit hole on that. There's obviously been some that have, have been more consistent and that I've done more digging into. So for example, I mentioned chrononutrition and the whole area of, of circadian biology and circadian rhythms, uh, as well as now this area of chrononutrition, so the influence of new, uh, of diet in that field, is something that I've been very interested in. And off the back of that talk and a article I wrote for Greg Knuckles' site, Stronger by Science, uh, last year, a lot of people had a big reaction to that. And so I've been asked to talk about that quite a lot, at various podcasts and things like that. But in general, what I choose to talk about on the podcast, just dart around because of stuff I come across. So it's not pre-planned of what are industry trends or what would get the most listens or uh, here's a nice sequence that will all fit together nice and neatly. It's, it's just very much just random. Uh, and I, I don't know why. But it's obviously working. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm actually, uh, I've been reading, I've, I've finished a book actually recently called range by David Epstein. And he, and he has some concepts in there about the breadth of interest and topics that people can have. And the idea of in, in certain cases where a generalist can outperform in the long term, someone who's hyper specialized on one specific thing. And he talks about how some people are set up better for one versus the other. And so Maybe it's just my own confirmation bias, but I started seeing those parallels there where rather than it be a specific expert in any one area of nutrition, I'll tend to just spread my interests across a, a whole lot of them and go for a breadth of understanding as opposed to a depth of understanding on one specific thing. So for any nutrition topic that we could talk about, I could immediately find you several people who know a lot more about that specific thing than me. But what I think has been useful for the podcast, because there's so many different topics and because there's so many people who listen to the podcast who are kind of like me and are generally interested in a lot of topics, they find it useful because we cover so many different things. And so I have enough knowledge to be able to talk relatively competently about a number of these different things and be able to ask insightful questions, but I'm not the authority on any one of those specific things. I would say I, I would be able to point to people who are better. And so that's the way it's panned out for me that, that it's been a breadth of expertise or a breadth of knowledge, let's say versus a depth of knowledge on one specific thing, which has led to success for at least for me or what, people might look as success, success, but, and again, I'd probably debate that as well. So, and I think people should need to be aware of that as well, that we have this idea that we're, well, oh, what's the point in doing something if 
there's all these people who know more on this topic than me. And it's, there's always a unique way to put your skills and experiences together. Um, and that seems to be the way it's panned out. Excellent. Very well said, Danny. Fair play to you. What I'm super impressed with just listening to what you just said, that last little snippet of audio is that what I spotted nearly first thing, what always catches my eye on your own Instagram kind of bio there at the top of the page is uh, the little quote about that you're an expert in nothing but curious in a lot. And it's just nail in the head stuff just listening to you there mm-hmm. because you'll delve into anything, but you're, but you're so humble that you're, I, I can actually, you know, if you, if you really want to delve into it, I, I can bring you so far, but I can, I can also advise you this guy and this girl are know even more, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's just to me, it's just a dose of realism that if people want a expert on a specific topic, there are people that have true expertise that are like at the top of the research field on a specific topic. But when you look at it, it's hyper specialized. And the more and more expertise you want in a specific thing, in order to get to that level, you need to cut yourself off from learning about other things, which is not necessarily a bad thing, depending on what your goal is. If you want to be a really, really good researcher in a particular field, you're going to have to specialize to some degree on a specific thing. Like there's researchers that may spend their whole life looking at one specific enzyme or one specific uh, amino acid is their main focus. Or there's people who their whole research career is dedicated to the role of one micronutrient and they become the leading authority maybe in the world in that area. And we'll know far more about uh, that than virtually anyone. So like if, if I was, I could give people general information about vitamin D, let's say, but my supervisor for my master's thesis, Professor Kevin Cashman at UCC, is like one of the world leaders in vitamin D. And he will know things that are just that I will never know, no matter because he can just go that that depth of of understanding. But at the same time, then there are nutrition related topics, like if we talk about nutrition for the combat sport athlete, which is something I've talked about, that Professor Cashman probably wouldn't know. Um, so it's expert, the more expertise you get is, is confined to, uh, more of a domain. So I'm happy not to be the expert on any one of these topics. And I prefer to spread my knowledge across many things and just enough to be able to be competently talk about it. And one way isn't necessarily better than the other. It depends on what that person's preference is. There may be people who get into fitness who are, who just, only want to know about one thing, right? Let's say they want to know everything there is to know about muscle hypertrophy. And that's, that's their main thing. Maybe they um, are really interested in bodybuilding, but on a nerdy side, also just really love hearing about training approaches that maximize hypertrophy and just want to go deep on learning about that all the time and dig into details of all the research in that area. And they can get complete fulfillment from that. Whereas someone else might want to know, well, what are the couple of main primary takeaways about training to build muscle mass? But this is one small area I'm not going to pay that much attention to, but there's all these other areas related to fitness more generally that I want some knowledge on as well. So both options are fine. It depends on just what people feel them themselves is best suited to them. And yeah, we shouldn't always lock ourselves into this idea that I, I can't talk about anything unless I am an expert in this. Or conversely, I don't have to paint myself out to be the expert 
for in order for people to listen to me because uh, again wh- whether it's a good idea or not people listen to me but i'll quite happily tell them i'm not an expert on any of these specific topics so yeah you don't need to paint yourself as that in order to have enough knowledge to help other people and so i think that's the the cure for a lot of people who have because there's lots of coaches i know who have really good level of knowledge that could help a lot of people and are worried about either posting that stuff online or speaking up with their ideas or opinions because they have this idea of, well who am i to talk about this there's other people who know more and it's just a, a fallacy again you don't want to be overconfident and speak with certainty and be closed off to learning more or think that you know everything already but you can also put forth your ideas if you think you have some reasonable level of knowledge and particularly in a coaching capacity like you're you're not putting out content to help other coaches or researchers do you know enough to help the person that's asking you for help like are they doing something that even the most basic level of knowledge to you would be transformational for them if so then you can you can start putting that into action you don't need to be um silenced until you feel you've got become an expert in everything right that's very valuable and fantastic advice to anyone listening and even to myself yeah i'll definitely take that on board and it comes back to what we said earlier about i guess if a number of trustworthy coaches or profiles are at a minimum speaking about the same message or the same topic you know and, and things are crossing over and it all makes sense it's unreal what you just said that you're not you're not trying to impress the coach down the road or the online coach with the with the with the popular podcast it's it's the the viewer or the reader or the listener it's the person who's interacting to try and learn something is the person you're trying to invert to come as impress you know what i mean that's who the Mm. knowledge is for you're not trying to better anyone else and as i said to tie into what we said earlier if the same message is starting to come from a couple of trustworthy sources it can only add value and, and kind of it can only kind of emphasize that it's decent information. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that's spot on. So you you mentioned combat sport mm. earlier. That's what I wanted to delve into next. And I suppose I'd be very much an outsider. I just about know who Conor McGregor is, but besides that, I'm, I wouldn't know a whole point about, mm. about MMA and boxing and that. But what I do know in terms of just a little bit of reading I've done and a small bit of study on it is... Some of the weight cuts that are involved in within the sport or the, the, both kind of combat sports are, are quite extreme. And I just wondered, in your from your experience, have you seen cases where where general health and, and in your case maybe the client or certainly the fighter's health is almost overlooked with the emphasis put on on the competition and and the result? Yeah, well, I mean, in any significant weight cut that most fighters are undertaking, health isn't really the consideration there like um from there's a point. yeah from and it's just a kind of accepted part of the sport almost at this point particularly for people competing at a, a relatively high level and i think more people need to realize the priorities of those athletes when they're talking about this if we were looking at it entirely from a health perspective then we would just say there should be no weight cuts at all we'll just completely make it impossible for someone to do we'll either ban them or we'll essentially say you have to weigh in right before you step into the ring or or something like that number one that's just not feasible from a practical perspective but two it's overlooking that the the athletes here their primary focus is on winning and so the question is how do we 
allow them to reach whatever level they're trying to reach in the sport while mitigating the potential downsides to weight cut. So how can we stop some of the dangerous practices that some of them undertake? Um, and, and several of them do things that are, uh, that can be dangerous purely because they don't have the information or knowledge to be able to put together a safer strategy to cut the same amount of weight. Some of them then probably may be cutting too much weight. Others may be trying to do weight cuts before they've got as lean as they could. And if they lose more body fat, that means they would have to dehydrate less, for example. There's lots of various things that we can do to decrease uh, the risk involved with a weight cut. But we still have to accept that any degree of weight cut carries some amount of risk. Now, our goal is to minimize that as, as low as possible so that it's very unlikely to cause any uh, real issues, um, at least in the long term. But generally, you won't be able to change an athlete's mind if you only talk about the health consequences. And thankfully, there's plenty that I can point them to to show that they would receive performance benefits both in the short term and in the long term longevity in the sport by changing their approach to weight cuts and by doing so they can actually perform better and have better cardio during fights for example and those things are probably more likely to get an initial response but yeah i would say most fighters who have undergone a significant weight cut at least acutely there's a very clear health detriment and then the question is how much that plays into long-term health consequences when that's repeated many times over the course of a career. Um, and that will just depend on the type of weight cuts they're doing. But yeah, objectively, it's not a health promoting thing to do. Have you seen incidents where coaches have the same approach as fighters, where by rights they should have maybe a more health conscious approach? And like where we, we've, mm. you've mentioned that the fighter's primary concern is the result. Mm where I assume the coaches shouldn't necessarily be the result. It should be, it should be the welfare of, of the fighter and their client. Yeah. And, and I think it's got a lot better now. I, I think most coaches are more cognizant of that, particularly with a lot of the athletes who worked with are in MMA, for example. And I'm quite encouraged that a lot of coaches and teams that are around fighters and the, and the fighters themselves now as well, are much more cognizant of taking care of their long-term health. And you see this now in how they approach training and sparring. There, there's a much more awareness of the potential for head trauma and being smart with how they organize sparring sessions and the frequency and, and that type of stuff. And the same now is with their approach to nutrition and weight cuts. More of them want to do a, a smart way that's going to allow me to be a healthy athlete for the long term so I can stay fighting. But certainly there's been cases all over the world where coaches haven't been doing things that are necessarily in the fighter's interest for their health. And I wouldn't immediately say that all those coaches are doing it because they don't care about the fighter. In fact, I think they, they care a lot. A lot of times it's just a lack of understanding of the real consequences. And a lot of it is cultural to those sports that weight cutting is something that's been around for a long period of time. Those coaches have probably seen those strategies used by hundreds of fighters they've worked with before. They may have used them themselves when they were competing. And it's just a thing that is done. And it's just seen as 
this is the way we make weight for fights. It's going to be really difficult. It's going to suck, but you just do it and you use your mental toughness to get through this weight cut. And once you do it, that's all that matters. And maybe just not aware of what those long-term consequences could be on health. Um, and I think definitely not a realization of their athletes could be performing a lot better if they took a, a, a more strategic approach um, that wasn't as severe. So yeah, it's not always done with ill intent or not caring about the athlete. Sometimes it's just done because they, they don't know any better. It's just culturally part of the sport and they don't realize what those consequences are. Thankfully now, I think more and more good information is getting out there about the consequences of it. And so they're more happy to take on outside experts in, in sports nutrition to be able to help with those weight cuts, thankfully. Excellent. And was it those kind of intense weight cuts and, and training programs up to a fight that attracted you to the sport initially or was there just a general interest? No. So I, I've been following MMA for a long period of time for, for many years. And when I first went to college, started training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu down in Limerick, um, I was training under Fergal Quinlan, who, who gave me my blue belt. And um, while I was there, I had dabbled in some MMA classes as well for a while, but never did it competitively um, at any serious level, but was, was fascinated by the sport. I've been to tons of UFC events and some um, smaller shows as well. And then when I was um, working up in Dublin, a good friend of mine who's a strength and conditioning coach had been working with some of the local fighters and wanted me to take over some of their nutrition for upcoming fights and started doing that. A couple of them were very well known. One in particular was a, a high profile Muay Thai fighter here in Ireland. And then off the back of that, more and more people were getting in contact. And then I started writing a bit about what we were doing. And then things kind of just spread from there. Um, and then started working with more of those types of athletes. And then that's what kind of led on to the, the publication of the MMA and, and, and boxing uh, system, the weight cutting system, that I, the book that I put out was just a way to help more of those athletes who uh, couldn't have access to, to coaching. And yeah, that's how it kind of started. Just kind of that natural progression of, of being interested in the sport first and then the, these random things that just pop up and then kind of took off from there. Yeah, fantastic. It's a nice little team throughout your career so far from, from chatting to today and, and one or two previous conversations that I suppose just a, just a humble approach with a genuine interest and then just focus on the content and, and, and helping those in front of you, our clients and fighters, whoever it might be. You know, it's proven it's work, like, which is fantastic for you. Yeah, I think often people suspect there's some sort of big master plan that's needed to get to a certain point or they feel under pressure that they don't have exactly everything mapped out of where they want to go and what they want to be doing. Or maybe they actually do put that plan together and then start making themselves feel anxious about not moving in that direction or hitting certain milestones. And it's certainly been my experience that I've never been one for trying to create these big master plans that take many years to enact and all these things have to fall into place. I think you don't do those things looking forward. Instead, you look at kind of currently, where am I? What potential opportunities are here in front of me that might be useful to explore and then start trying those and moving in those directions and then give up on stuff that isn't going to be useful to you and then go after stuff that seems exciting or useful and then things just start happening once you start taking action and doing that. 
then over time you'll find the things that you're more interested in doing or that you're more suited to. And then when you find work and projects that you're more suited to, stuff just starts popping up then that you couldn't have predicted was going to pop up. And then those things end up happening. And then you just kind of go with that natural flow instead of saying, no, this wasn't part of my plan. I have to stick to doing these specific things that I planned for myself, however many months or years ago. Um, and you maybe are a bit shut off from what could happen. Um, and I think everyone could see this if they look backwards on their life, if they look back five years ago from now. And if you'd ask them, if you if you were talking to the five-year-old, uh, five yourself five yeah. years ago, would that person have been able to say what was going to happen to you now or the things that have happened to you in those intervening five years or the type of person that you are or the interests that you now have? We would have never been able to plan for that or predict it. And so this, we should apply that same logic looking forward that are you really going to be able to plan for what the you of five years from now is going to be doing or be interested in? Probably not with a high degree of precision because you just don't know what's going to happen in life. So that's the way I've tended to think about it. Yeah, it's very interesting because personally what I usually do and, and I've spoke to, to small groups in college and that about it is initially starting off, I liked the kind of, you know, the old fashioned question, where will you be in five years idea? So I've kind of had like a three to five year idea. I kind of follow that approach. But what is similar between my approach and your approach and what I advise people to do is that week one into your five year plan, you should have the next week to the end of the five year plan. You know what I mean? It keeps moving like. Mm. from week to month so like if you're if you have your goal for five years time in two weeks time or in a month's time you need you need to add on the next month then to the end line you know what i mean there is right. no way as such because yes. between opportunity experience failure setback it's going to change literally as you say every 24 hours like yeah you know? and oh. i think um yeah and i absolutely see how there's value into having you need to have some sort of guiding direction of where you're going which is what that three to five year plan gives people of, okay, here's what I'm aiming for that my actions between now and then should kind of correlate to moving me in that general direction. And I think that can be useful, but only if uh, that person has become a slave to that specific goal and they can have a lot of flexibility. So if it's quite a gen general goal, then that's and, better. And a loose approach to it also, you know, exactly. And just being willing to modify it, that, yeah. You can have this plan, but in two months from now, it's okay for you to say, do you know what, I'm actually going to modify it a bit, or even say, actually, I'm going to completely scrap this now because something yeah. has came up that I couldn't have planned, and now here's my new three- to five-year goal. And so that can be updated and modified as opposed to being something that is immovable that you feel you must do. I think, yeah, just remaining open to the, the possibility you may need to modify or change or scrap it altogether. Very well said, excellent. Yeah. And Danny, before we, I didn't want to brush past the book, as I know, I'd like to mention it for listeners. Um, it, it's brilliant. I've, I've come across it before, but it's Sigma Weight Cutting System for MMA and boxing. How was the whole process for you? Did you enjoy it? Will there be a, will there be a follow up or a second one down the line, perhaps? <laughs> the process of writing a book is, is generally not super fun. Uh, it's nice putting together an outline and collecting the initial information, but an actual book writing process is something that is quite slow for me, particularly. I'm quite a slow writer. But once it was ready and put out, it was uh, very useful. I've been 
quite overwhelmed with how useful people have found it and the nice experiences that people have shared with me over email that they've been able to use it. So it's definitely been something in the long term has been very beneficial and I'm glad I did. In the At the moment, I've been going through some of the information to try and update it and it'll probably be updated in a format similar to like an online course type thing, hopefully at some nice. stage this year, but um, there's no hard deadline because I've I've been making deadlines on that over the past year and every time I keep failing on them. So we'll just see how that one pans out. But that's the format I hope to have it out in because I realize there's a lot of people who would learn more from that style of teaching than from reading a book. And they probably haven't been able to get access to that information yet because of that reason that that, that they, they, they wouldn't find a book useful. And so that's the goal, put it in a almost an online course type format uh, with all the updates from the research that's happened in the three years since that came out. Um, that so good. yeah, that's the plan. Excellent. We look forward to that. And, w- and would you um, would you take on the task of, of writing a book even on a different topic again, or, or did was it was it a bit tedious? You said it was a bit of a slow process too. I would do a book, but my idea is that no, I know how difficult writing a book would be, um, even more so than than that. Like like a proper book that would put all my effort into would be a considerable effort and time and I would consider doing one but only when I felt I had something worth saying and right now I haven't got to a point where I think I've anything worth saying in a book or that I need to write at least um but when I get to the point where I feel that maybe I'd consider it Danny what I wanted to put to you next my man I will wrap it up quite soon I really appreciate your time today from all you've achieved to date and, and it's so much and, and so much success what would you say or is there a kind of standout highlight or uh, maybe an achievement that that you're just that stands out at, that you're super proud of i think we we may have talked about it a bit earlier when we said um about how i enjoy doing like live events and seminars and so on and i would say for those reasons those would be highlights that i'd pick out uh, several different uh, events that I've that I've been at or done uh, would be on a, a par for that reason because I've been able to meet really cool people that I've only known on the internet before that or I've got to meet people who maybe listen to the podcast and now I've seen at several events and now you kind of have this relationship that's a, a bit different and so they're always really useful and I very much enjoy them and just the fact that you can now see people who are there to listen to something you have to say. It's it's very flattering, and I'm quite honoured that that people would would feel that way, and are willing to pay money to listen to stuff uh, that I have to say. So those things would probably be the the highlights. I would say, yeah. And I mean, I mean, there's probably several other things. Like a, if someone sends me a specific email about how the podcast helped them, like they're all. I would include those things in with with highlights. And I don't know if there's one specific thing, but I don't really view them as achievements per se. I just view them as like, these are things that happen that I enjoy. And it's because I'm sharing that experience with people at these events or things they say. Um, And it's enjoying that conversation or knowing that some sort of thing I did played a, a useful role for them but i attribute a lot of it down to 
luck quite generally. And I don't I find that I find the word achievement it's not the word I would use to sum up some of those experiences. At least at those like events. It's not like to me it was just yeah, someone asked me to talk and I really enjoyed doing it and hopefully it was useful to people. But the reason I liked that experience isn't because I felt this sense of achievement from it. The reason I liked it was because I got to interact with these people and, and to share a certain moment with them, if that makes sense. So it seems like a bit of a small distinction, but that's that's the way it typically happened for me, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess I'd pick those. It's very, uh, very humbling to listen to you. Yeah, and I suppose you mentioned their luck. Uh, it's an interesting, we could probably do another podcast on luck, but... I do believe that hard work and dedication attracts luck. Would you agree? Possibly. I'm, I mean, I think, <laughs> well, I know that it's possible for people to work very hard and be unlucky. And then it's also possible for people to get very lucky without working that hard. And so because of that, that's why I tend to be a bit more conservative in saying certain things that, that I've been able to do are down to achievement or are down to my hard work or down to some sort of talent or something like that because of the role that I genuinely believe luck plays in a lot of things. And so I don't think that anything I've done is a signifier that I work harder than other people. To me, it's just, it's just something that has happened and that's what it is. Now, on a practical level, I would never say to someone, oh, so if you want to achieve certain things, don't bother working hard. Just hope that luck hits you. That's not the right strategy. So I would agree that there's, yeah, you can increase your chances of achieving certain things that you're after through hard work. And you can definitely work to a point where you can increase that probability as high as it's ever going to be. So I, I definitely think that's accurate. And I do think hard work done consistently is probably one of the most important factors for for people to achieve some sort of goal depending on how they define those things but yeah i, I just i just i'm very wary that that correlation isn't a hundred percent and there's there's extremes on either side of that now most often they will probably match up but there's extremes there that exist so uh, that's why i kind of don't try and say this is just down to my hard work because it's very realistic. And I, would, I would add to that, regardless of our, our possible slight difference of opinion on that, but I, but I also do believe that hard work creates and attracts opportunity and then further hard work ensures maybe kind of max result and max return from those opportunities. Like you may offered an opportunity and make mm. no use. Right. Hard yeah. working and humbling and you have the right approach then again, you get down the line, perhaps you get rewarded from taking on that opportunity and making a good go of it, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, so I think the distinction is on an individual basis, it's almost certain that for any one of us as an individual, working hard at something is preferable to not working hard at it. At least if you want to get good at that thing or you want to be productive in that area or whatever it is you want to spend your time doing for you as an individual, the version of you that works hard at that thing will outperform the version of you in a parallel universe that doesn't work hard or is like, I'm not going to bother. Where my point was more in relation to comparison between individuals, 
that doesn't tightly as correlate uh, that not everyone who is the hardest worker gets rewarded as, as much. And then people who are the luckiest can get rewarded more than maybe their work deserves. And I mean, you just need to look at the wealth inequality in the world right now and the social inequality uh, to see that people in certain privileged positions, a lot of them didn't get there through hard work. And then people in a lot of really bad situations are some of the hardest workers in the world, right? So that's the kind of the area at a population level is probably different to the practical information, which I think you're correct on is if we're talking to each of us as an individual and we are, let's say, lucky enough to have certain things in place, like we're born with enough resources to be able to be in a position where we can achieve these certain things that we haven't been confined to a concentration camp, let's say, uh, where we, we wouldn't be able to do certain things because we have that locked in to be able to go and achieve whatever it is that we, we are aiming to do in life. The way to do that is, yeah, work hard at that thing will almost certainly make you outperform the version of you that doesn't work hard at all. I think, so I think that's the probably the distinction that probably fits both those things together. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Very insightful, Danny. Excellent. Um, Danny, are you proud of everything to date? To come away from the words achievement, success, are you proud of Danny? I, I don't know if I would say that. Uh, and maybe that is, uh, maybe people would identify that as problematic and they might not be wrong, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I find that a hard word to use as well. I, uh, I think there's certain actions that I've, Done, uh, or certain behaviors that I have that I'm proud of. I, d I don't know how that relates to being proud as me globally as a person. I mean, uh, maybe it's the same thing and maybe I'm just overthinking it. But yeah, there's, there's definitely things I've done that I'm proud of in the same way there's probably things I've done that I'm not proud of. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how to make a global assessment of, of myself. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to think of pride in, in, in me as a self, as, as a person, uh, versus uh, pride in certain things maybe I've done. Yeah, Yeah. well, geez, look, I, I, the only thing I was going to add, regardless of your, of your answer, was just to, to say to you today and to remind you of the importance of, of being proud and, and, you know, holding pride in yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and even the last the last five or 10 minutes there of the conversation uh, and I can relate to it to a degree just there I got a sense that again possibly similar to myself that you're you, you might be an individual who's slow to kind of pat yourself on the back or take the five mm -hmm. minutes of reflection and say Jesus look it's not it's not you're not telling Danny in the mirror that he's the best thing since a sliced pan but just to acknowledge what you have achieved what you continue to achieve as you mentioned yourself and touched on how many people you're helping your generosity with your time prime example today with this podcast um and all the interaction and, and scheduling of setting it up and as i say like pride pride is intrinsic you know it's something within you that you need to kind of you need to include in, in your in your daily routine and your weekly routine and to uh definitely take a couple of minutes to pat yourself on the back every so often you know mm. i appreciate those words that's it's very kind of you to say and i i do realize it's probably an an area where i i don't 
excel at for sure and at times probably do the opposite in many respects so yeah something to work on absolutely that's, that's your homework for post yeah. podcast here today yeah and um, i had one one um one more question for you man and i'm conscious of, of the time as well uh, if i can put a question to you that that you often put to your own guests on your own platform your own podcast is there one thing that you could advise people and, and listeners today to do that would have a positive impact on maybe any area of their life kind of a general tip or a bit of advice particularly maybe in current climate and, and people are, mm. are very kind of you know in mixed scenarios now at the minute um would, would something spring to mind as, as a kind of a general bit of advice yeah i mean there, there could be lots of different ones i would i'd bounce around and, and use i think i may have said to you before that i think one that is particularly useful is to do something for someone else but in a way where you're not necessarily expecting anything back um and it doesn't have to be a massive grand gesture it has just be something that's just a nice thing to do for another person or for another group some people may call it like a, a random act of kindness but it, it, it doesn't even have to be that it doesn't I, I would take away the the randomness part of, of make it just part of a, a normal routine of of doing things uh, or doing even one thing daily that is a nice thing for someone else to receive uh, that could be sending a message to someone it could be giving someone a call it could be dropping food over to an elderly neighbor or something it could be the next time you go shopping saying to the person that's on the counter how much you appreciate what they're doing and that they're going to work every day through this and hope that they're doing okay and having a nice day or it could be anything i mean there's there's a million examples you you can probably find of just something small that's for someone else and the interesting thing is when you are doing something like that for another person without an agenda and without the aim of what will i get from it the side effect is that you actually can't do it without getting something from it you always get a positive feeling and emotion from it like a a phrase that many people have repeated of if if you don't know like if, if you're not happy at the moment and you don't know how to make yourself feel better don't try and make yourself feel better make make someone else try to make someone else feel better or try to make someone else feel good and, and usually that has at least some impact on a positive emotion so it's one of those things yeah try and do something selflessly but ironically it can never be selfless because we actually get a, a good thing from it and that's a good thing because it's reinforcing to try and do those behaviors um so that's what i would say to people like just think of something anything that someone else would appreciate on hearing it could be like messaging a family member to say that you love them it could be someone that you don't even know just or or someone that's doing some type of work that you just tell them hey i really appreciate what you're doing those things are useful to include and i think everyone myself included don't do them as often uh, as as we could and so that would be something i would probably start with yeah it's powerful stuff it's a brilliant answer and i suppose no more than ever in the current climate as i mentioned it's you mentioned the term grand gesture but it's probably the absolute simplistic kind gestures would mean the world right now to, to the yeah. person yeah they, they compound over time as well so there's only so many grand gestures that anyone can do you can do them from time to time 
but in terms of an ongoing, continuous way of being, those small things that add up are the the important thing to make part of your life, I think. Excellent. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Danny, that was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, I'd like to thank you very, very much for your time and your, your honesty and your insight into your own your own kind of bits and pieces of your personal life and certainly your, your career and um, all your work. Um, so thank you very, very much. I wish you the world of success going forward. I hope you, you stay safe and stay well throughout the current climate and I hope to um, catch up again very soon. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for having me on and uh, hopefully this was in some way useful. Absolutely. Danny, thanks a million. Thanks, man. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share and tag us on your stories and leave a review. As always, you can find us at jlynchpt.ie and across all our social media platforms with the handle at jlynchptcenter. Mind yourselves, mind each other and stay safe. Until the next one, cheers.